Welcome back. It's been a while since I last released an episode. The month of August got very, very hectic for me. I'm hoping that with the start of the new semester, I'm able to get back into the rhythm of releasing an episode every week. For this week's episode, I spoke with Michael. I've been reading his well-articulated messages on the Union Message Board for quite a while now. I always find them to be full of sage advice and a measured amount of anger when appropriate. Never offensive, but with just the right amount of heat that's needed to get the emotion across. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Mr. Michael. It's very nice to... I don't think I've ever met you in person. So no, I, it's I nice to virtually meet you, I guess. And postings and listening to some of your podcasts. But as with many people at the college, it's like, oh, now I have a face to put with the name. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a very pleasant face to, to put with the name. Um, I've read a, a fair bit that you've written on the union message boards. I've yeah. been following your posts for the past three years. And, and they're usually quite, not usually, they're always quite enlightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only thing that I, the only stuff that I know about you is from whatever you've shared in those, uh, in those message mm-hmm. boards. So I will, well, give you the proverbial mic. Uh, tell us or me about yourself, whatever you wish to share. Okay. Well, um, I'll go with two things because I, uh, long story short, a group that, Pre-COVID, my wife and belonged to um, is a group of people with Scottish heritage, Scottish American society. Mm-hmm. And at one of our session meetings, a few weeks of times before that, instead of our regular sort of presentation or something, they had a set session with each sharing something about ourselves to get to know each other better. So I'll share the two things I shared at that meeting. Um, and they both have to do with how what seems like little inconsequential things have huge impacts on our life. Um, one has to do with my parents. Um, my mother had grown up in, um, the mid in Midwest in, in Kansas and, um, difficult circumstances. My grandfather had been a teacher, but he became ill with MS and incapacitated. Um, this was in the thirties. Um, and so my mother was the youngest of seven good Irish Catholic family. She was the youngest. Her sister, Marie, was 10 years older, the oldest, and five boys in between. Wow. So as they graduated from high school, they moved to California, to the Los Angeles area, where there was work, and would send back money. Uh, my, my mother was the last to leave. Um, she was actually going to wait till she graduated high school, but my grandfather passed away about a year before. So she and my brother packed up, moved to Hollywood, and my mother graduated from Hollywood High, in the same class, although she didn't know them, with Nanette Febre and Alexis Smith. Meanwhile, my father had grown up in upstate New York, near Schenectady. Uh, my grandfather worked for GE um, for many years in their accounting department at a fairly high level. So he'd had a very different experience during the Depression, a secure upper class income middle. Um, when he graduated from high school, um, they were able to send him off to college, off to private college. And he went to USC in Los Angeles. He said the basic reason was he wanted something warm and far away and there wasn't a college in Hawaii. (laughs) Considering it was around 1940, it's probably just as well he didn't go to Hawaii. But he ended up in USC. 
Now, this is not how they met, though. Um, my father's college roommate one day decided he wanted to join the ROTC, Navy ROTC, but he didn't want to do it alone. So I talked my dad into doing it with him. And that's the person I owe to being here because my dad in Navy ROTC, of course, went off and served in World War II aboard a destroyer. And on destroyer, he made really good friends with a gentleman, Walter, or his known Doc Campbell, who is an optician. And they were both only children, sort of bonded like brothers. They came back after the war. Doc also lived in Los Angeles area, had born and grown up there. And he had gone to the same church that my mother's family had belonged to and knew all them as part of the youth group from the church before. So he brought my, brought my dad back and introduced him to this family. And basically, I guess they wanted to be brothers permanently. So they married the two sisters. And that's how I get to be all because of my dad's roommate at USC decided to join the ROTC. <laughs> the other thing is a person that probably I owe many things in my life to. Um, sort of a preliminary person, which um, when I was in high school, trying to select what college I would go to. And although I had a lot of background in music, I was planning to major in theater at that time because I wanted to be the great star of the stage in musical theater. Um, but I was choosing between two schools, Cal, Cal State University Long Beach and Cal State University Fullerton were both close to where I lived in Orange County. Um, and I was doing a summer theater production and talking to one of the guys in it who, as it turned out, was going to Long Beach. And he said, oh, you definitely want to go to Long Beach. They do more musicals and stuff than Fullerton does. So I ended up going to Long Beach. Now you think, you know, what's most important about your college education is the classes you take and the important teachers you had. And yes, I had a lot of stuff from that. But the most important thing was the person I met in a class. In my cost, in costume history, I think was the class we first met. I met a gal, Sandra Fitzgerald. We're still friends to this day, longtime friends. And many things in my life have happened because of my connection to her. Um, when I got out of college, um, she had a friend that was a high school drama teacher. And, oh, we need somebody to play for our show. And they hired me to do that. And then the band director got sick. So for the next musical, I took over and my, my first paid music um, conducting and musical directing jobs I got that way. Um, one summer, when I was looking for shows audition for, she said, oh, um, there's this show up at this summer show up at this college that my friend knows about. Let's go audition for that together. So we went audition. The show was Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, I had one of the principal roles. She was in the chorus. There I met Al Jessup who was the director of that show, who was also the teacher at a local community college up there, a choral teacher. And he ended up being sort of my mentor. Um, first thing he drafted me into, he had a sort of advanced part college, part community chamber choir that he drafted me into that I would be a part of for something like 12 out of the next 15 years, off and on. Um, and he said, you know, you've got all this, you play this, you got this. You should be a music teacher. You should be a choir director. Um, he drafted, convinced me to take an evening class he was having in conducting. I'd actually taken one conducting class in college, even though my major was in theater. Um, but I got his conducting class. And then he referred me to my first church choir conducting job 
said, oh, I got this church to link for director. You'd be perfect for this job. Go call them up. Um, and many other connections stemmed from that. Um, and eventually, a couple of years later, um, I would decide to go back to school to work towards my master's degree in um, music with a job towards looking for a career in teaching and conducting. Also, in that group, about let's see, 77 I joined. So two years later, um, when I was in the group, um, a new alto joined. This lovely, tall, beautiful alto that I immensely fell for. It took 20 years to convince her, but eventually we got married and we've been married for 20 years now. So 40 years knowing her, 20 years married. So, so many things in my life I can trace back to Sandy Fitzgerald, my classmate in a college class which probably was the most influential thing out of my entire college education. You're stealing my questions here. I feel like you're in my computer. The last question I was going to ask was based on the quote that one of the things that you had shared in your, uh, while you were selecting the time for the, for this meeting, mm -hmm. you had shared in our lives, there are often small, seemingly unimportant events or choices that turn out to have major effects on the rest of our lives. Uh, what seems important may not turn out to be, and something trivial can turn out to be really important. And I was going to ask you to, to close out our conversation to share one of these things or share one or two of those things. And I beat you to the punch and did it for the intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just basically running the interview backwards yeah. now. Uh, I'll get, I, I do have a question about what happened in the first 20 years and how did you get out of the friend zone? But I'll leave that for later. I have a okay. couple of other things that come to mind from what you just shared. Uh, and I don't want to forget them. And you're welcome to take it as meta in, in the most metaphysical direction as you like or not, or, or stay in the All rational right. realm. Uh, what part of these seemingly unimportant moments do you think are purely chance and, and just random particles bouncing each other, uh, bouncing against each other? Or do you think that there's any uh, sense of, I hate to use the big word predetermination, but do, do you account for all these things that happen to chance? Or do you think that there's some version of I don't know if it's the old bearded guy standing in, in the clouds? Yeah, no, or I, I understand what you're saying. Um, there have been too many things in my life that have come to me unlooked for mm -hmm. or come to me not through my reaching out for them but them reaching to me whether they were you know through a, somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody sort of thing or all sorts of things too many things in my life have come that way for me to think they can all be random whether you see this as, depending on your belief system, as a god or divinity pointing your way in life or providing you with opportunities, now you still have your choices what you do with them. Sure. Or I don't, predestination, I don't think anything such as predestination because you always still have your choice what you do with the opportunities life presents you. But I feel that too many things were presented to me that I was not out looking for or I was not the instigator of them for it to be just random. Um, and I'll give you one example of that. As I mentioned, 
under the inspiration of Al Jessup, I decided to return back to school and eventually, you know, pursue a teaching in conducting in the music area. So looking for maybe teaching, directing a chorus, um, doing musical theater productions, professional otherwise, but moving away from performing into that side. And so that had started to germinate in my mind. And certainly over those, the years after college into him, you know, that had fallen. And still, even many of those opportunities along the way had been ones that sort of came to me. Um, in high school, I did my first musical theater directing when our, the high school hadn't done a musical in many years, long story. Um, but each year, besides our main productions, there was one that was normally a student one action or a student directed project. And our drama group decided we wanted to do a musical for a student project. And so basically the advisor said, well, I don't know anything about this, but uh, you know, I'll approve it as your advisor as long as you guys got to take control of the whole thing. So we did, and I was the musical director. And the show was Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. Now I had had year, I'd been playing piano since I was four. I had lots of musical training and stuff. So I was well equipped to do that. So when I get to college, I'm a theater major. I'm, I'm singing in an advanced choir, taking a couple music classes and voice, but predominantly doing theater. But it became a known around the theater area that I play the piano. So, oh, I got asked to do this. And then their children's theater program, they had a children's theater degree program, they were doing a good man, Charlie Brown. And they needed somebody to play the accompaniment. And so somebody knew me and said, he can do this. And I even know the show backwards and forwards. And then one summer between one of the directors, uh, teachers there was doing a summer theater production at a local Jewish community center. And so she came to me and said, I need a musical director, will you be my musical director? My first big paying job. Um, it's another story about being a 19 year old college male around a bunch of 13 year old middle school Jewish American princesses, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, then when I was graduating from college, um, I was working, I was, I'd just been in a couple professional productions um, with a local theater company and the musical director there I was taking voice lessons from. And at the cast party, she said, oh, I'm doing this show this summer and my company's just quit. Do you want a job for the summer working with my accompanist? I'm thinking, okay, I'm just graduating. My dad had me on allowance until I graduated, but then I needed money for myself and she just handed me a job. <laughs> And then about the time that was finishing up, I got a call from another theater group that was doing a production and they needed someone to do both the theater direction and the musical theater direction for this show. That just sort of overlapped with it slightly, but okay, came that from, I think that, it, I don't know for sure, I think it come from a recommendation from a professor at the college, but I don't know for sure. But it was this very obscure show that nobody knows, except me, because I had read this like when I was eight and I had seen gone through scores and doing it so I was probably one of five people in the world who even knew this show and they came to me and asked me to do it um, and as I said things like this kept happening so when I was considering going back to school I was working for a lumber company I was uh, selling lumber how did that happen where did that come from uh, that came from a friend who I met in our singing group who became my best friend at the time who worked there and they had an opening 
And I was working at the time for a law firm, which is a whole nother story. Uh, but I was working with a law firm in downtown LA. And he said, oh, this job opened up here. It's a better job than when you've got it pays money, you should go for it. And I'm going, I don't know bleep about lumber. What, you know, so that's what, okay. You know, you're smart, you've got good people skills, you've got good math skills, um, and you can learn this stuff. And I'll recommend you. I said, okay. So I went down and interviewed and I got the job. And I went from about 500 months at the time to 800 a month. Um, and within a couple of years later, had moved on up two rungs in the ladder, et cetera. But anyway, so I was been at this job. It's now three years at the job. I'm having these thoughts about going back to school. They decide it has now been bought out by another conglomeration and they decide to consolidate and close locations. And they decide they're going to close the location where I work. So, some people got transferred. Some people didn't run a longer, longer sort of the retirement golden handshake. And the rest of us were let go with the severance package of, I think it was like $1,000 something for each year we had worked. So I'm thinking about going back to school, wondering why I should do this. And I'm suddenly got out of, suddenly out of a job and got handed $3,000. I took it as a sign <laughs> and I went back to school. So too many things like this happen for me to believe these are all just sort of random collisions of cells. Do you, do you think that that has resulted in you being more open uh, to the possibility of, uh, or, or, or taking a leap of faith, for instance? Uh, I'll share an example. Whenever something out of the blue that's pleasant or it's a pleasant surprise happens to me, uh, enough, not enough of these things have happened to where I'll just take it and run with it. I often look at it with a great deal of skepticism, like you're going to do this for me for free. That, there's a catch somewhere. So ha have you developed, I guess, a positive disposition towards these things happening and because they've happened to you, you just take it or are you still, you know, do you still question that they happen or when they happen? Um, I'd say I've probably first off, I probably being younger, I was a lot less um, afraid of taking a leap of faith or worrying about future consequences than I am now. Um, and most of the things that came were not things that had necessarily a, you know, oh, this could be a negative thing, mm -hmm. but it did require sort of a certain bit of leap of faith. You know, in the one case, losing the job sort of kicked me out the door. I didn't have to take a leap of faith there, but I had to decide what to do now that I didn't have that job. Did I go for another full-time job somewhere or did I use this opportunity to go back to school? Um, and I was surprisingly, when I look at myself, I, I look at some of the things I did and go, how could I have been that brave, stupid, whatever at the time? Um, to give an idea, it has to go back to the lumber company job and the choir that I was in. Um, I'd been at the lumber company job now about a year and the choir I was in was going to go to England for two weeks on tour in the summer. They always went on tour somewhere every, every summer. So that year was going to England and Scotland. And a couple of the other people, the choir, you know, one of the gals in the choir, another friend, and a couple of friends they were going to take, her friends were going to join her and they were going to take a couple months and do the hostile backpacking across Europe and something. I was 25. I'm thinking, you know, when am I going to get this opportunity to go to Europe again? I'm 25. I don't have any major obligations. 
So I decided I was going to take this into a long thing. Um, and so I figured it was, I was going to take the two weeks of there and another four weeks in Europe, a couple weeks with my roommate doing a couple things. I had my, one of my cousins was stationed in Germany. I figured I'd visit her on the way back. I'd visit relatives I had on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. Anyway, this was going to be like a two-month-plus thing. I've been at my job about a year. Now, and during that time, I advanced up twice and now was in the position that my friend that had recommended me used to have because he had left and I'd been promoted up to his job. Um, but I'm figuring, I've only been here a year. You know, it didn't even come into my mind to ask them, hey, can I take two months off and come back? <laughs> you know, I just figured I, I can't do this, but I wanted to do this. So I quit my job. I went and told them, you know, I've got this one opportunity and it's like, I'll be gone two months plus. So I think this is the only reasonable thing to do it. You know, I didn't even bring up the situation of, hey, will you hold the job for me? Um, I wasn't completely stupid. I financially had saved up enough money to cover not only the time of the trip, but to cover my expenses for a two to three month period when I got back to give me time. So I'm not a complete idiot, but still I'm quitting a job, going off to thing, coming back. Where will I find a job? I came back. As soon as the word got to my back, my old employer was at me on the, called me on the phone and they were begging me to come back to the work and offer me a raise. <laughs> but when I look at myself, 25 years giving up the only job you have to go off to Europe and come back with no prospect of a job when you come back, the 60 plus year old me would not be that <laughs> adventuresome. But at 25, uh, have you ever seen the movie The Adjustment Bureau? No, I don't think I have. I would recommend it. Okay. I, the Adjustment? I, the Adjustment, like a, a adjusting your shoulders yeah. or something. Yeah, adjusting, the adjustment, adjustment Bureau. I will look for that. I, I think it's uh, Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a pleasant little movie. Uh, no, Not a whole bunch of you know uh, Jason Bourne things going on. But uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I think... You'll find some good parallels between what, at least what you've shared and uh, the, the sense of serendipity, but also some puppet wires, so depending mm -hmm. on where on the spectrum right. of belief you land, uh, you might be able to walk away with different uh, thoughts. All right. So it, you seem to have had a, a, and I'm not saying that it's over now. Uh, mm -hmm. You've had a very long and illustrious career. We, I, I keep seeing emails with your names, uh, with your name on them, with uh, you know, in, induction to the Hall of Fame, uh, other awards, and, and you seem to be always held in, in high regard whenever your name comes up in, in polite company. Mm, you're talking to the right people. <laughs> Not everybody would agree, but... <laughs> uh, well, I, I think even the people that disagree still say things out of reverence. So even if you... Uh, which I think is a very enviable position to be in, that people can still dislike your opinions, but mm -hmm. still respect the fact that you shared them or you're the person holding them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll ask a question that Matt Clauser actually asked me... Uh, on, in his episode, uh, what drives you? What drives me? Um, I'd say probably one thing is I deal with an art form 
that I really love. In my teaching and everything, I deal with an art form of music that I really love. And good music, making music, good things about music is food to me. Like people who, that, that, so that's my, that's my passion. And although there are negative aspects to, to the job and that things don't always go smoothly, whatever, I'm blessed to be able to work in a field full-time and a decent income related to my passion. And when things go good, and it may be just that one moment in a choir rehearsal where suddenly it sounds really wonderful, or working with a student where they suddenly get something for this time, those things that go well, you know, balance out the other bleep that you have to deal with. <laughs> um, sometimes less than others, but <laughs> there's always that, the trade-off for that. I find it interesting, some of the comments you made, and even when I think about it now, when I came in, um, there was a gentleman who was the, an art teacher, Pat Slatery, and he had been around for a long time. And I used to call, refer to him as, you know, he was the, the voice of history, and he was the one that knew where all the bodies were buried, et cetera. And I find suddenly now I am in the opinion of being the historian. Because <laughs> people talk about stuff, well, I don't know, I remember back in 19, da, 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 when this happened related to that. And so I have now suddenly become this person with the long view historical perspective on things, particularly as far as this college it concerns, because of my being here for many years through many changes and different people. Something else that just popped in my head. Would you give, so borrowing from two things you mentioned, one mm -hmm. was that the fact that you get to continue to do something that you love or that you, you, know, you mm -hmm. enjoy music and you continue to teach it. Um, what advice would you give to 25-year-old Michael or let's say an unsuspecting student walks into your class and they're looking for guidance? Do you tell them to... Uh, go to Europe at 25 with no prospect of, uh, of a job that awaits them when they come back? Uh, or do you think that time has changed now to where, you know, when you were able to take that trip, obviously in, in, in time space, it was a different time, but do you think that there's still an ability to go and do that and then come back and chase whatever needs to be chased? Or do you think that uh, once you find that thing you really enjoy, you stick to it and then everything else kind of gets put aside. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that it takes time, can take time to find your path, mm -hmm. you know, but I think, you know, it's wonderful if you can and have the opportunity to be able to pursue it. Now, I know things are different now. Economy is different. Finding work is different. Cost of college proportionally hugely different than what it was in the 70s sure. or early 80s. So, you know, those sort of things factor in. Um, but also don't necessarily think early on that you have your life mapped out and it's going to weigh the way you thought it was. Because remember, I thought I was going to be a stage performer and with a backup to teach theater. That's what I went into college thinking. And that's not where life took me. This is why I sometimes think the idea that our students are going to be a enter and know this is the career I want and this is the degree I want to get that career and go through that 
which is unfortunately the way a lot of our society looks at education, even in governmental thing, you know, this way financial aid looks at it and the way the state looks mm -hmm. at us as being successful. Successful student who comes in, knows what he's going to do, takes his degree, takes no extra classes at all, completes it and then gets immediately a job in that field. And from my experience, that's not how life worked. And many things I got would not have happened if it had gone that way. I mean, sure. The fact that I had a degree in theater and all that background informed the things I could do in music. You know, I went back to school and changed degrees. You know, fortunately, I had the finances and other things to do that. But people now in financial aid doesn't look positively on things like that or taking courses outside your very prescribed major. Uh, even when I was a major, I had, I think, more freedom in general, gen ed in courses outside my major that I could take rather than a very regimented gen ed structure because I know I took chorus and and some other music courses and you know I didn't run 8,000 courses over my degree total to do that um, so you know and I think about sometimes every time I hear about the state and how they're tracking their measures of success and stuff I think gee you know how many how many how many of them had a career in what they got their first degree in how many of them did their, got where they got without taking something outside of 120 credit bachelor's degree, you know? Um, and there's some huge statistics on people, you know, as how many get a degree and then their career doesn't necessarily directly follow that path. And not, it's not that their failures in life or success was just things don't go that directly. Um, you know, I would say when, and, and, and so when I look at the way college, uh, and this started about when I came in, the outcome-based funding thing started in the mid-90s. Oh, wow. So I, I thought that it was more recent, but. No, now okay. they did it differently uh, okay. originally, but before that it was like everything was just based on the butts and seats. And then around 95, 96, a couple years after I came in, the state started shifting to this outcome-based idea. And a time with those colleges, once again, it was based on completing a degree. You had, if you did not complete a degree, you were not a success. And as a school, you would not have been successful with that student. And they were completing a degree and they were looking at how many credits it took you to take that degree, to complete it. So if it was 60 credits, you completed a 60 credit degree and 60 credits as a college, you got X amount. If it took you 70 credits, you got less. Fair. So, you know, less amount, the more credits it took somebody to complete that degree. But it was, and it wasn't your entire budget, but now part of the budget, part of your money was based on degree completion, which before had been purely enrollment based, purely butts and seats. And that was a major paradigm change. And I always said, this is not realistic. There are people that come and take classes that don't have a degree goal. There are people that take classes and don't complete a degree, but go on to be very successful. There are many people and still are students that take classes here and leave and transfer to a university and complete a degree there without having completed their AA here. I have two students um, from a few years ago who are now both married and they're both working locally in the K through 12 system teaching music. Um, that when they were here, when they graduated, they weren't married yet, but they were a couple. And when they, I was like, graduated, he had completed his AA, she had not. They both went on to complete their bachelor's in music degree, music education degrees at University of South Florida. They got 
came back, both got teaching jobs, both have been very successful. But as far as the state is concerned in measuring outcomes, only one of that student had a successful experience here because the other one did not complete their degree. So this is my big issue with their whole idea of measuring and defining what success is in terms of what we do as an institution and whether students experience here was successful. I, I think it's incredibly myopic uh, to, to think that, well, to think exactly what you just shared. Uh, yeah. that I mean, we're not a factory making widgets. You can't just measure us by how many widgets we crank <laughs> up. Um, it doesn't look, I mean, one of my most famous, I've got you know, a number of students that have gone to success. One of the most successful students I have um, was a student back from the 90s. Um, her name is Laura Vivas. If you look on out there, she's got a very active professional performing career, pop music clubs, and that's very active, success, very successful. She was on the NBC show The Voice as one of the contestants. Didn't make the finals, but she made partway through. Of course, she's not successful, big private state is concerned, because she left here without an AA degree. Now, I'm convinced still that she still benefited from the courses she took here and that contributed to the success she had. But the state measuring system says no degree, it doesn't count. So I get off my high horse now. <laughs> well, switching gears to, I, I think, uh, I, I'm more curious about this. Uh, you mentioned that it, it took you, or you've known your wife for 40 years, but only married for 20. Uh, or not only married for 20. Yeah. Uh, what happened? How did you meet Mrs. McMullen? Uh, what's the story there for 20 years? And right. Well, remember my trip to Europe. Mm -hmm. So I came back from the trip to Europe um, and I wasn't even to say planning to rejoin that same college community vocal group again. I'd had the trip to Europe. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but after a while back, I came and I, they had already started up rehearsals while I was gone in the fall. I came back. But then I went back and went in and sat in and to come back and say hello and visit and stuff. And, you know, whatever at first sight, <laughs> there was this beautiful new alto in there. And actually, I had seen before. Um, I had seen her previous year. I'd gone to a theater production, a local theater production of Brigadoon that she had been in because I knew somebody else in the show and I loved the show. And I went to see that and she had a featured role in that. And I remembered her from that. <laughs> so it says, I saw, I knew you were, you saw you a year before we met, but I went in and, you know, <laughs> saw her and that was it. Um, and we went to also, then there was another group auditioning for a production of a very rarely done, though done a lot recently because of his centenary theater piece by Leonard Bernstein called Mass. Um, it was premiered, it was the opening premiered as the opening of the Kennedy Center in 1972 was commissioned for that. And so this was around 1980 and it was being done locally. And we both went and auditioned and got cast in it. So now I'm seeing her not only in the Truth Tonight rehearsal, but we're going to all these other rehearsals um, with that. So we dated and went out and started dating, went out a few times. And, you know, after a while, you know, I'm definitely, you know, this is not just casual dating to me. And so I sort of sent her the val a Valentine's Day card, sort of expressing my, my feelings. And I basically got the, well, I'm really flattered, but... Ah, uh. you know, da, 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 da. oh, are you, are you ready for this? Uh, oh, she'll wait me for saying this, but oh, and your roommate asked me out, so I'm gonna go out with him. <laughs> oh! 
The betrayal. That did not work out, but thank God. But it's like, and he had asked me before, is it okay if I ask her out? I was like, but it's after she's, anyway. Um, so anyway, so, but we were still in this group, it's still doing, and we really got along well. So we became very, very, very good best of friends. Um, and so this went on for, let's see, this was 79 to join. Um, I was with the group through 82. Um, and by that point I was back in college, but we did another trip to Scotland, which this time I, I managed, I had booked everything, um, and done a lot of the basic tour management for that trip. Um, and I was also at that point serving as assistant conductor with the group and stuff. So after that I was busy in college. So I was still around the area for another year. So we were still, we saw each other all the time in the group and other best things and friends. And even, um, you know, there had been a couple of times we joked that a couple of times she, we'd had um, a couple of nights that she came over after something and stayed over at my apartment. Um, I, you know, one time was we came back from a party at somebody's house and it was super, super foggy. So it's like, okay, we're going to stay here overnight. Sure. You know, here's the guest room. And the next morning we had the concert. It's like, okay, you know, like, don't let anybody know. <laughs> Um, and then another time I had a big party, I was in a different place and she was there and oh, I've got a dentist appointment in the air tomorrow morning. Can I just stay overnight? Sure. So, you know, we had moved into this super, super, very good friend mode. Um, and we even used to joke like, you know, oh, 20 years from now, if nobody else gets married us, you know, maybe we'll talk sort of thing. Uh, then I went off away for about four years. I went off out of the area for a year to work for a professional theater company for a year. Um, in between taking courses at Cal State Fullerton to prepare myself for the master's. And then I went to Phoenix, or actually Tempe, Arizona, to Arizona State University for three years to get my master's. And I came back um, after all that. And during this time, she had gotten engaged, but then that didn't work out. I had had a relationship with somebody that in Arizona that ended up not working out, whatever. We came back. And I came back, started singing with the group, and we were seeing each other, and I brought her to a party, and so she joined the group again, and now we are back with the group again, and we're sort of, you know, we're the gang. Um, a good friend of mine joined that year, who later would be my best man at wedding. We were known as Bob Bing and Dorothy. <laughs> and then um, fourth person going to join the next year, another woman joined, became friends, and we sort of became a foursome and did all kinds of things together. We went to the Renaissance Fair every year. We just, you know, all sorts of things. Um, still in the very, very, very good friend zone. Um, and then eventually in 1994, I moved out here. And you know, this was the, well, I'm moving to Florida. I'll never see you again. And of course we say, and God laughed. Because I came out in 94. Um, and I had some difficult times that first year out here. Not so much the college was difficult, but big move out here, new place, all on my own. I had lived on my own a lot, but I didn't know anybody here. And for the past, at that point, about six, let's see, 94, five plus years, I'd been living with my father after his second wife had passed away. So we had sort of had a tight family unit of that. So now, you know, so adjusting out here, the stress of a new job, not knowing anybody. It was a difficult year for me, I'll admit. And she was going through some own issues of herself on her own. Um, and we, I went back a couple times at holidays. And I remember specific on my spring break back trip, we both talked about the difficulties we we're having, which sort of brought us even closer and stuff. But then of course, 
that summer I came back because after just a year trial, my dad was moving out here to join me. So we came back and packed him up and then it was going to be, well, I'm off to Florida to, and I'll never see you again speech. Then I'm out here and over the year, now we'd also go, traveled a couple times together too, now that was a group, but on our own once when a group trip didn't happen, um, the, 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 the Bing of Bob Bing and Dorothy, my friend Kevin Wiley, who was later my best man, he and I and Lisa and her mother booked and went on a trip to Germany. So we had traveled on independently. So anyway, um, she called up, I think it was somewhere in the spring or late summer and said, um, hey, mom and I are going to Scandinavia in the summer. You want to come join us <laughs> on this trip? I said, okay. And it was falling like right after summer A, so I was going to be free. And I said, okay, well, did a book a thing. And when you get there, come, we're starting a couple days early ahead of the trip in Copenhagen, da, 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 come to the train station and come to the center station in town and we'll find you there. <laughs> and we have all the information we're staying and stuff, but you just, we'll find you there. And she says, boy, what a leap of faith I had to just show up in Copenhagen and hope they would actually show up and find me. <laughs> so they did, and we had a wonderful trip. And at the end of it, it was the, well, now I'm leaving. I'll never see you again, da-da-da, again. Um, I came back here. Um, my father was ill, however, and would pass away within about three to four months from cancer. So that Christmas, not wanting to be alone, I went back to California to visit family and saw her again while I was there. And then there was a convention in California and I went back for that. And then the next year she and her mom flew out here to spend Christmas with me. And then there was another convention. And then there was a trip every year. One or the other of us kept flying out to me to see each other. It's like, you know, it kept saying, it was just gonna be the last, we'll never see each other again, you know, 43 times over now. Um, and in 1998, we went on a trip to Eastern Europe, um, which was interesting because now 98, every, this was now post-communism mm -hmm. and stuff. So it was an interesting time to be back there. Um, interesting time seeing Berlin. We had been there in the early 90s, only a year or two after the wall had fallen and the change had been fantastic. And we went to places, some places we've been before in Germany and in Austria, but we also went to Poland and Czechoslovakia and even Romania which turned out to be really nice and special. And things began to get a little different with us. Just when we were sort of hanging out together, we were like sitting in a little park somewhere and it's like, ooh, this feels like a romantic moment. <laughs> Something happened, but like, oh, it feels different. And we had several of these, oh, it feels different. And like the last night, um, you know, we, we, we had been booking normally as a threesome, so we would share a, a room with an extra cot, all the three mm -hmm. of us. Um, but the last place when they didn't have room large enough, so I had read a room and she had another room with the mother. And she came in and she said, you know, I, I, remember, I want to spend the time with you. <laughs> so she came and spent the last night with me. And so, and then that Christmas, I came out, no, yeah, around Christmas I came out to visit because there was a music conference in the beginning of January. So, I could combine a business trip with a holiday trip and went out there um, for the holidays. And when I saw her, we joked the late, was it just the swoop or what was different? Because her hairstyle was different, but things felt different between us. Um, and she had had, she had some 
difficult family history that I think had affected things a lot along the way. And that has started to change for the positive over the last couple of years. Short story, she never knew her father until she was like 40. Fair. Um, and I think resolving that relationship changed a lot of things for her. So I remember on the last thing of this trip, I was there and I remember one time we we're sitting doing something and she was like doing it. And she just like was stroking, stroked my hair or something. And I'm like, ah, uh? and I got back and like, uh, was that, am I imagining something or are things different or whatever? And I finally got up the gumption to write the letter. Jane Austen would have been proud. <laughs> but I wrote the letter basically spilling out everything and I've been in love with you for 20 years and blah, blah, blah. And then I sent off the letter and then sat around terrified. And one day actually the phone rang and I could tell it was her no, no, I phone, I've, she'd called while I was away, called I was off a church shop, and she called while I was away, and it came back, and there was a message from her. And when I first um, started to listen to it, I, I saw it was there, and then I stopped, like, no, I'm not ready to listen to this. I can't, I you know, finally steal on my nerve to listen to it. And, you know, I had asked the lady, you know, is it just the swoop? Is there something different, you know? And she said, so the answer to your question is no. No, it's not just the swoop. <laughs> oh. that, that's that's cruel. I, know. I guess that's the prerogative. And then so that led to many letters and phone calls. Uh, spring break vacation where she and her mom flew out. I met them up in Savannah and we did a week trip of the South. Um, in May, um, I did a long... We do something in A then? Yeah, we're still on some A then. So I did it, must have done it around a break, a long Labor Day weekend. I'm mean, not Labor Day, Memorial Day weekend thing with a couple of extra days. I flew out there and this was our secret visit because this was just the two of us. We didn't tell anybody else I was in town. This was the two of us to see together to see what it was really like being as a couple, not just friends. And would this really work? Because <laughs> the big thing we, you know, once again, the, the risk is when you've had this wonderful person in your life, um, even though it's just a friend category, this is still one of the most important people in my life and for both of us. And the, the risk in that is that trying to change that relationship will somehow ruin it and you'll never be able to go back. So that was the risky thing. In fact, one time I remember we were going to a movie and walked around and like, oh, wait, is that somebody we know over there? Oh, no, quick. Don't let them see us. Um, we went to visit one woman, one woman that had been in the choir um, that had said, uh, lovely English woman, she was a, come over as a war bride um, and stuff. And she had known us for many years. Well, the first year in the choir she said, someday I will dance at your wedding. <laughs> she was the first person we told. <laughs> we met her at that time and told her she had to give a seat, but we didn't tell anybody, you know, Last person of all these is mother or close friends, nobody. Um, and then after that, we continued. And after summer A, I went back again for the trip. And this is when I popped the question. <laughs> and uh, she said yes. And that winter break, um, we got married. <laughs> and I left here 
on a Monday afternoon after doing my last final calculating the grains of turning of somebody here, turn these grades in for me <laughs> and took me to the airport and flew out there. Um, we got married on Friday, had about a three, four day honeymoon in San Luis Obispo area, and then came back and spent a week packing up her entire house and flew out here on the 30th, not the 31st, because this was Y2K mm -hmm. with her dog. And it just said, if we survived a week of packing your house, we figured we could survive anything. So it was a big leap of faith for her because she was leaving, you know, coming out here, leaving everything she knew behind, a job that she wasn't really all that happy in, but, um, and didn't know what was going to happen here. And then she um, took some classes here. She had a computer background, was interested in maybe getting to some education training related that or something. And within less than a year, I think it was about October, November, there was opening at a job at the college and she was hired at the college um, as PTLC specialist mm -hmm. in the Lake Worth campus where she worked until the beginning of May when she was furloughed. Mm. What you, you mentioned, and I, I, I was waiting for you to, to stop or pause to ask the question, but I, I didn't want to stop your, your stream of thought, so I might be messing up your words, but you said that you weren't comfortable with the idea of changing the relationship and potentially messing up the, the beautiful or the wonderful friendship that you have with her or had with her. Yeah. What did you think was, or well, what was going to change if you go from being friends to now being, well, being excellent friends to now being a couple? Well, I, I don't know, you know, how big that intersection is or yeah. no, I take that back. I think the intersection is huge. The intersection is huge. Okay. And I think, you know, you know, the fact that we were very, very close without a romantic relationship first really has given us the foundation it's much better if it goes the other way around where you start with romance and become friends later. Um, so we had that with that foundation, but you know, still the change is a little weird. <laughs> the first kiss, <laughs> you know, all those things like new, you know, and what if this feels strange? I remember my mother told me a story when she was part with the young persons group um, that, you know, they sort of like, not speed dated, but you know, among that they mingle up in different groups and everybody eventually dated everybody else at some time. And one time she went out with Doc, who would eventually become her brother-in-law by marrying her sister. And she said, it was horrible. It was like dating my brother. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, just because you're really great friends and you may have these feelings, you still don't know if it's going to work out. Fair. And I guess the question is, you know, if you try and it doesn't, how does that, does that, or how does that change things? You don't know, but you know, it's, it's, it's a leap of faith and a risk. And I mean, I certainly was took it, but it was not one that without, for both of us awareness, a little bit of <laughs> about it uncertainty. Cause I think we both really wanted it to work out. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, could only, Cross our fingers and hope and pray. I I was not aware, or maybe I had missed it. I, I wasn't sure that she was, uh, I guess, working at Palm Beach State as well. So this mm -hmm. gives me an inroad to now ask her as well to join me on one of these podcast episodes. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I'd love yeah, yes, to hear 
19- how she remembers like, the, this story. Yeah. And actually, I used to joke, she, she knows because of her position, she works a lot with adjuncts, but mm-hmm. knows many people. She knows many, many people across the campus, much more than I do. You know, and they were law to me. Oh, I used to, jo- I used to joke, I am Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> and, uh, I am Jackie. I'm, I'm John Kennedy. You know, they, they said, you know, I am the man who accompanied Jackie Kennedy to Paris. You know, I mean, I am the man that accompanied Lisa McMullen because I would go to all these people that know her. Oh, you're her husband. You know, because I'm in the music area, which is sort of this little corner of the campus that doesn't necessarily, you know, interact, especially before I became a department chair. When I became a department chair, going to those meetings and stuff, you know, sure. I got to know more of my colleagues and also through my union activities. But yeah, I used to joke about, you know, I accompanied Lisa Mac. I'm the husband of Lisa McMullen. I, I, I'd love to have a chance to to sit and speak with her. So if you if you don't mind, put in a good word for me as well. Oh, I'm sure she'd be thrilled. She was the one who said, "Oh, uh, he's got such a wonderful voice." Oh, thank Talking you about you. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna switch to some of the questions that. Uh, so I spoke with someone this morning and I'm throwing her under the bus because I've known her for almost a decade. She was supposed to send me questions to ask you. So <laughs> the, the way it's worked is every time, you know, I, I have questions that I ask, but I always ask, uh, like I will after this conversation is over, uh, please send me a couple of questions that you think would be good to ask the following interview, mm-hmm. interviewee. And she never sent me her questions. So, so she, she's definitely not getting chocolate uh, anytime in the near future. But uh, so these are questions that uh, perhaps were a little pointy. Um, and I, I thought that uh, not knowing you, but having read email responses from you, I didn't think that you would shy away from them. Uh, that being said, if you wish to ignore any of them, please feel free to. A um, couple of these came from Stefania Volpe. Uh, who I had on the podcast towards the beginning, maybe fifth or sixth episode. But anyhow, uh, she asked, in one year from now, how do you imagine normal life? Will we continue to navigate the world without limitation and regard social distance? Will grocery stores like Publix keep their sneeze guards installed? Will we continue to wear face masks at a, as a usual precaution? Well, that question is not dated well. How do you define the new normal? What I can say is I think we will at some point return to something more similar in the way we go about doing our lives activities than before. We will return to something that's fairly close to normal. Now, how long it will take to get there is a, and how we will get there is a whole nother path. Obviously things like developing a vaccine, things like developing very good treatment for the disease. Um, although there's still many unknown questions. I know one of the things I keep reading about that nobody's been talking about is even for people that are asymptomatic, potential long-term effects mm-hmm. to your health. Um, there was something recently I read an article about, I, it was related to Palm Beach, I don't recall who it was a medical person was saying they were, you know, like um, children that had had the disease with a little, little no effects, but they were showing in x-rays that their bodies were different the lung conditions that happen. So there's so many things about this we don't know. But there have been plagues in the past. 
and so eventually somehow we will come out of this. Um, so I think there's two issues. So I think at some time we will come out of this and be able to mingle and do things in a more or less normal way and not have to be as ser seriously concerned about these precautions. How we will get there and how long is a whole another issue that is, is a great unknown. Hopefully, though, it will not be the old normal in terms of that, if not from practicality, the way we view the world, the way we view each other and stuff will be different and hopefully different for the better. At least that's my hope. I can't guarantee that in the way that those of us that live through 9-11, the way we view things in the world is never quite the same after that. You know, those of us that lived through Vietnam and Watergate, that changed the way we viewed the world in many ways. Sometimes later down the way, we've forgotten some of the lessons we learned from that. But major things like this will, 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 will I think, change people. I, and I just hope that it will predominantly change people in a better way. And keep my fingers crossed on that one. 9-11 uh, is, is interesting in that I know that there's a very vocal minority that thinks that it was something that, you know, George W. Bush did himself or that it was an inside job. But I, I would argue that the overwhelming majority agrees that it was not good, to, to put mm. it very imprecisely, that it was not something good that happened, that it was something bad and that everyone had to come together and, and you know, Right. Some freedoms needed to be give up, given up or some rights needed to be given up so that it was for the protection of everyone else that we do things the way we do now. Uh, I would argue the same thing happened with Watergate and the Vietnam War as well. Even though there was a strong opposition to uh, going to war, I think that, well, I, I don't want to get too far back, but do you think that it's too acute right now to where we don't see consensus in the way we saw it with 9-11? Because th there's this very vocal, but right. I don't think that it's the minority. It no, I think, well, one thing, I mean, that I think has been going on for a number of years, and many people commented, is an increasing polarization and disconnect among the population, particularly the United States and sure. elsewhere too. And, you know, much more different than even after Vietnam and Watergate. I mean, those things are the horrible stuff, but still people on opposite sides could find ways to be civil with each other, could find ways to work together on something. And that is, we are getting so separated there. And although I would say I'm more democratic than Republican, I am certainly a more moderate than anything. And everything seems to be drifting to the extremes and everything is getting so polarized. And unfortunately, the concern I see about this is in some areas, it seems to be making, the current situation seems to be making this worse. That's what I was trying to say, but and so, I wasn't able to. That Yeah, so, you know, I don't think this was created by the situation. This has been going on, coming on for the last decade or more. Um, but it's certainly been increasing. And, you know, this has, unfortunately, rather than, you know, World War II, everybody rallying together for the cause, 
this seems to have done the opposite in many ways. The one thing it has done is it has made people more assertive and active about what they believe in. We're seeing interesting effect other things. So I'm hoping the positive aspects of that on the things that I do believe in will lead to good <laughs> as opposed to the ones that I disagree with. Um, but yeah, you're certainly right. There isn't, I mean, um, the other thing, you know, like I see after this instantly after Watergate in Vietnam was, although it changed us in many ways, you know, the, the, just about the war and certainly Watergate was like a, the huge disillusionment about a government and honesty and people and stuff like that. To some extent, you know, in the decade or so afterwards, it was all sort of like trying to just forget about that and, and, and sort of have fun and not worry about that in the sort of 80s excess and that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, everything affects everything. Um, and sometimes for things that we think are positive and sometimes not so much. So I can only hope and pray that when we do come to the other side of whatever we are in, or what we are in now, that the effects will be more positive than negative. Fair. Uh, to borrow the, the words that you use, uh, comes the next question. What's the personal beliefs that you find difficult to defend? Uh, is it, sorry, would you say, phrase that again? Sorry. What What's a personal belief that you find difficult to defend? Um, I have real problem with two things. I have real problem with the people who are saying this is all made up, that this is a fodemic or whatever, mm -hmm. and all the numbers are made up, inflated, and it's just done being for a game, and it doesn't really exist. It's like you are ignoring the facts of the world. There are facts and you can interpret them and what people do, but you know, this is happening. And I, I, people I know even that I, that I've known before and see on Facebook, I don't really have anything to do with them anymore, but you know, I see the, under uh, this, Oh, this is all just the entire thing is fake news. And it's like, what you think about it is one thing, but you can't tell me the sky isn't blue when it's blue. Um, and related to that, I'm, is somebody out there may be offended by this. I am, I am really offended by the anti-mask thing. Um, especially the whole rationality about it being, you know, you know, it's my body. I have the right to, to do, choose whatever I do. And the big thing is that the main purpose of mask wearing is not to protect you from others. It's to protect others from you. And your rights about that choice end when your actions affect other people. And that has always been true. That has affected many things in, in policies in the country. That, that's why you can't yell fire in a crowded thing. That's why eventually we have passed laws against secondhand smoke and stuff like that. It's like when your actions affect other people, your rights to do whatever you want unhindered end. And so the people who go on crying, well, no, I don't, I don't like mask mask is impinging on my this not, and it's my choice to do whatever I want for me. It's yes, but that is not a choice for you. That is a choice you're inflicting upon others. Um, so I have a real, real, real issue with that. I, I, perhaps there was a better way to phrase the question. Um, it, it, I guess the intent of the question was not just 
what are beliefs that you find difficult to defend that other people hold, but perhaps something that you believe in yourself that hmm. you struggle with to maintain? Hmm. <laughs> For instance, to give a, a, a silly example, I might say unicorns are the most beautiful animals, but then I can't come to terms with the fact that unicorns don't exist. I'm again. So, yeah. Uh, is there anything that you believe in, unicorns or otherwise, that you know you say, "Get off my lawn"? I believe in that, and that's the end of it. I don't know. I mean, I think because there are you know, things you believe in, but that are basically a subjective thing. Okay. Um, and so, although I may think that X is beautiful or wonderful music, I acknowledge that not everybody may share that belief. Even if I can define by certain standards of criteria, this is good, that doesn't mean that somebody else would appreciate it as well. You know, fortunately, I was brought up in terms of, you know, like in terms of music to listen to all types of things and to you may like X more than one Y, but you need to be able to appreciate quality, even in things you may not like. So, you know, that's like it's so many of those things are, 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 are sort of person related. And I think to me is the hardest thing for anybody, I don't say to defend is the right word, but faith-related feelings and choices that people have are based on what is faith, which is basically your own belief in something that cannot be empirically proven. Sure. That is the nature of faith. So no matter how strong your faith is, you know, you can explain it to somebody else. You can explain the positive effects on you. You can explain why you believe in it, all those sorts of things. But that doesn't mean somebody else is going to share it. I would hope they would respect it as I would respect someone else who may have a different beliefs than mine. But it's not something, you know, it's not like the sky is blue. We can prove this. It is not. That is the nature of faith. Faith is something, no matter what your belief system is, faith is something that cannot be proven. It is the leap of faith by its very nature. So I know I don't want to say it's something that you can't defend, but you know, you can, you can't, you know, make somebody else believe what you believe. Because everyone's belief is a choice that they have to make for themselves. I have to go back to the drawing board with that question. I think that there's a good question there, but I don't think I've found it yet. Okay. So maybe, you know, by, by the time I get to your wife, uh, Hopefully I'll have a, a better version of that question. Um, last couple of things. Share something that you wouldn't share unless someone asked you a very direct question about it. Hmm. What wouldn't I share unless somebody asked me a direct question about? Uh, ooh, that's hard to think of. Surprise, surprising enough, as verbal as I am here, I am not a directly initiating outgoing person. Mm -hmm. I'm the person party that sort of sits in the corner until somebody strikes up a conversation with them. Sort of thing. And then you can't shut me off, but, you know, so, you know, but 
Um, Why do you think that is? I, I, I feel very similar in that I will also feel a lot more comfortable with a cup of coffee sitting by myself. But then when someone starts talking, I have at times taken over the conversation where. Yeah. Well, I think it has to do with a couple of things. For one thing, being an only child. And I moved constantly. My dad was in the military. I lived in nine places and 11 different residences by the time I graduated from high school. Wow. It wasn't to college that I ever went to a school for more than two years in a row. So I never developed those sorts of long-term relationships growing up except with my parents. Um, you know, I, and we weren't, um, a couple times we had some other family near us, but that was mainly when I was younger in preschool. So most of my, you know, school age, which is what I remember, you know, occasionally visiting family member, but it was a lot of that and a lot of change. And so you learn to be sort of by yourself a lot. And I was a bit of the geeky kid. I was overweight. I'm, I am again now. I wasn't in my 20s. I got down in college and kept down for a while, but I was, I was the new kid. I was the fat kid. I was the smart kid, which wasn't necessarily something that made you popular. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you learn to be alone. You learn to, you know, lack confidence in your social skills. And, uh, and you learn to be very comfortable doing stuff on your own. So, you know, I'm not uncomfortable in a social setting, obviously, but I'm not the initiator. Sure. And it's interesting. My father was the same way. I wouldn't say he was shy. He was also an only child. Now he, but he was, he was very social, but he was not the initiator. He would join with other people and they would be the ones who initiate. Let's do this. Let's do that. He would go along. He was everybody's best friend. Everybody loved Uncle Mac, was when my dad was known and stuff like that. But it was my mother from the gregarious seven person Irish family that was an initiator. You know, this was the family that used to joke literally, you know, was joke was when you came to dinner with this family, it was initiation right. You know, <laughs> they keep you, they keep passing food, keep you passing food all night during the dinner so you didn't have a chance to talk. This is a family that they would discuss things and argue, and this was their dinner time conversation and somebody would change signs of the argument in a minute just because they thought things were getting stale and they just switched to the other side of the argument to keep it going <laughs> you know for all the ones that married into the family learned that marrying into the philbin clan you were not marrying the person you were marrying the family and getting used to this entire crazy clan was a whole nother thing so you know they were both very social people but came at it in very different ways and i remember after my mother passed away my freshman year of college um, my mother had lupus and, and she passed me a freshman year of college. So, um, and six weeks prior to that, my dad's father had passed away. How we survived that year, I will never know. Uh, but after that, it was the two of us and my grandmother. Now we still, we were still in California. We'd moved to Southern California because we had some of our family nearby, including my uncle Doc and my aunt Marie and stuff. But still it's like, uh, well now if we need to want to do something, we have to plan it. <laughs> So with neither, we, we, we threw a couple parties, which are like, we never thrown a party in our life. Dad went to parties. He never knew how to throw a party. <laughs> so I think, you know, 
that's part of it. I remember when I was um, working for one theater company that was run by a married couple. They both had professional theater careers and then they ran this, created this Civic Light Opera company and stuff that I did some performance with and went to parties at their house. Um, which is inside note interesting. I thought, oh, beautiful, what a wonderful, beautiful house. And 10 years, about, I don't know, 10, 12 years later, my dad would end up moving into and living for many years in a house that was a block away from that. <laughs> it's like, oh, we ended up in this cool area. But anyway, at their house, you know, and of course, there was these, these after parties would go on after the show all the way to dawn the next morning. And, you know, people drank and all kinds of stuff. But the interesting was that difference in personalities came out through the night. She became more and more gregarious, outgoing, everything. He would become more quiet in a corner. But if you sat with him, you would have these wonderful, deep conversations. <laughs> but they sort of went in opposite directions, you know. So I, you know, I'm, I'm social and enjoy stuff, but I'm, you know, you know, I guess I go into, there's a part of me that goes into meeting somebody new or anything new. I think this person's not going to be interested in me. Why would this person like me? Why would this person care about what I think? Which makes me not sort of go in with that initial thing. Hi, you want to know me? And it's like, I sort of go in with the assumption that you don't want to know me. All right, for the last question, uh, what would you title this episode and or the podcast at large? Oh, gee. You mean by your whole, your whole podcast thing? Yeah, I, I started off and I've shared this story a couple of times where when I created an account on the Anchor website where all the podcasts are hosted, yeah. uh, I, I thought it would be the typical, you know, type in your name, your username, password, yada, yada, yada. But they wanted a title right then. Uh, and, and so you got the I have no title podcast well flippantly that's what I wrote that I needed a yeah. title at the time so right. I, I just wrote I need a title podcast and uh, I, I slept on it and I, I realized that hey why, why be clever when I can leverage other more clever people to come up with clever titles well the one thing that strikes me although the last word isn't right but was uh the title of uh, award-winning book by JFK, Profiles in Courage. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know that courage is the right word, and I don't know exactly what the word would be, but I think you are doing profiles in something. <laughs> if that makes sense. Profile, sure. I don't know if you say teaching, because you're talking to people about their lives in general, but it's, it's, it's these, it, that's, a, anyway, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. Profiles in education. I don't know, because I think you're talking with people much beyond just the teaching part of their lives. Obviously. I am. I, I think it, it creeps in frequently because we're, I don't want to say married to our jobs, but it, it, it's a significant part of us. So yes. invariably teaching practices and, and the college somehow comes out in one way, shape or form or the other. Uh, but that, that part, you know, I, I could probably go on your faculty page and and yeah. read a fair bit about you, but that doesn't tell me who you are as an individual. That you're learning to find out the why behind that. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, obviously one, one, I think one reason is some of the many part of us in the education field is because for the most part, you know, many people take a job that necessarily is not the job that 
they want are greening to want to take because it's a wonderful job. They're taking it because of its financial benefits and otherwise. I mean, I did well my my lumber sale selling job and it was great. But I was not, you know, that my heart was not necessarily in that job. I enjoyed the job. I enjoyed the people I work with. Teaching is something that you teaching is something you go into for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes in some areas like mine and some others, it's like it's one of the few financially secure ways to work in your field. <laughs> As we listen to performing arts is the most demanding hard thing to, to, to make a living in and teaching in that area is one of the few secure positions in that for English and many other areas. It's like one of the few financially secure t- career tracks where you can work in an area of study that that passes you. So some people I would venture go into it not necessarily because they have a passion for teaching, but because they have a passion for their field. And this is the one way for them to work in their field. Um, and the ones that survive in teaching are the ones that develop a passion for the teaching as well. Sure. As the ones that don't will never be able to put up with the the bad side of, of everything has a good and bad side. And the ones that don't develop a passion for the teaching aspect will flame out because they can't handle the bad aspects of that. So we are, you know, in a different aspect than I think I would say a lot of the population where, you know, our job is not something we do that's okay for the purpose of having our life outside of our job. Our job is a major part of our life and a major part of how we are able to interact with whatever our main passionate interest of area is. I think, well, are you a fan of, or have you ever watched The Daily Show with Jon Stewart? I've seen sometimes. I don't watch it regularly, but I have seen it often. Uh, he's no longer the host, but I think a while back, it might have been him or Trevor Noah that started uh, a, a parody of Profiles in Courage, and they, they called it uh, Profiles in Tremendiosity. <laughs> <laughs> and it was to, to poke fun at, you know, political actors uh, or, or politicians at, at large so yeah. every week they would come up with you know person xyz or senator xyz and then they would share all the uh the, the wonderful programs that their state had that they defunded and it, it would just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse uh, and they had it by districts i'll have to find a link to it uh, what about the episode itself uh, what what do you think of that um I want to say, I don't want to say an unexpected life, <laughs> but um, maybe that is, is it? Because as I say, you know, what the young me thought my life was going to be is not what it turned out. And I'd say that's probably for the better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, this, you know, as I said, this was not the life that I was, the 20 year old me was looking it for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, life takes you, you know, in this case, life kept pointing me sign voice towards different things. That's going to be saying, go over here, go over here. <laughs> and I said, okay, I can take a hint. <laughs> you know, okay, I, I guess that's, you know, so, um, unfortunately it all eventually, you know, worked out for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would not have seen it at times. It took me seven years between when I completed my master's until I got a full-time job, which was here. So I spent seven years, about 
half or more of my theory, I spent time, time spent working as an accompanist for dance classes and other things and about some adjunct teaching and church jobs and all sorts of things. And probably if my, uh, my dad's second wife, my, my stepmother Dottie had not passed away and I not moved in with him, I would have not have survived it as financially well as I did. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, you know, it wasn't until 40 that I, and I remember coming up to this job, I was like approaching 40 and I had this huge, I'm 40 and a failure complex going on in my head. <laughs> you know, here I am 40, I'm 40, I don't have a job, I don't have a career, you know, all these things you should have probably by 30. And here I am still flouncing on these part-time jobs and I'm living with my father and da da da, and like, oh, you know, my life's going nowhere and I'm gonna be a disaster. And then this job came <laughs> and things went differently. I think there's a lot there to unpack that I want to, but perhaps in a different conversation. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so very much for sharing your afternoon with me. It was an absolute uh, pleasure, pleasure getting to know you and, and speaking with you some more. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael. Next week, our very own fearless chief negotiator. In this clip, the entire High Clan makes an appearance. And I came home and I just did not feel well. And I came home like around six or seven, and I told him I was extremely tired. I said I had a bad headache that I was just gonna go lay down. And so I'm laying down with the lights off, and all of a sudden he comes in this scuba wetsuit and starts dancing on the bed. So yeah, it was equal parts angry. So there was a lot. My guys been more laughing on another occasion, probably. On this occasion, it was probably more irritation than laughter. There was plenty of laughter. I was hearing that. There was laughing, right? There was laughter. Laughter. Right. Until next time, for another 81 times, take care.